Chapter 2, Section C, Part 1 of A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy by Karl Marx Translated by Nahum Isaac Stone This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada Chapter 2, Section C, Part 1 Theories of the Medium of Circulation and of Money as the universal thirst for gold prompted nations and princes in the 16th and 17th centuries, the period of infancy of modern bourgeois society, to crusades beyond the sea in search of the golden grail, the first interpreters of the modern world, the founders of the monetary system, of which the mercantile system is but a variation, proclaimed gold and silver, i.e. money, as the only thing that constitutes wealth. Footnote. Quote, Gold is a wonderful thing. Whoever possesses it is master of all that he desires. By means of gold, even admission to heaven may be gained for souls. End quote. Columbus in a letter from Jamaica in 1503. End of they were quite right when, from the point of view of the simple circulation of commodities, they declared that the mission of bourgeois society was to make money, that is, to build up everlasting treasures, which neither moth nor rust could eat. It is no argument with the monetary system to say that a ton of iron whose price is three pounds constitutes a value of the same magnitude as three pounds worth of gold. The point here is not the magnitude of the exchange value, but as to what constitutes its adequate form. If the monetary and mercantile systems single out international trade and the particular branches of national industry directly connected with that trade as the only true sources of wealth or money, it must be borne in mind that in that period the greater part of national production was still carried on under forms of feudalism and was the source from which producers drew directly their means of subsistence. Products, as a rule, were not turned into commodities, nor, therefore, into money. They did not enter into the general social interchange of matter, did not, therefore, appear as embodiments of universal abstract labor, and did not, in fact, constitute bourgeois wealth. Money as the end and object of circulation is exchange value, or abstract wealth. But it is no material element of wealth, and does not form the directing goal and impelling motive of production. True to the conditions as they prevailed in that primitive stage of bourgeois production, those unrecognized profits held fast to the pure, tangible, and resplendent form of exchange value, to its form of a universal commodity as against all special commodities. The proper bourgeois economic sphere of that period was the sphere of the circulation of commodities. Hence, they judged the entire complex process of bourgeois production from the point of view of that elementary sphere and confounded money with capital. The unceasing war of modern economists against the monetary and mercantile system is mostly due to the fact that this system blabs out in brutally naive fashion the secret of bourgeois production, viz. its subjection to the domination of exchange value. Ricardo, though wrong in the application he makes of it, remarks somewhere that even in times of famine, grain is imported, not because the nation is starving, but because the grain dealer is making money. In its criticism of the monetary and mercantile system, political economy, by attacking that system as a mere illusion and as a false theory, fails to recognize in it the barbaric form of its own fundamental principles. 
Furthermore, this system has not only a historic justification, but within certain spheres of modern economy, retains until now the full rights of citizenship. At all stages of the bourgeois system of production, in which wealth assumes the elementary form of a commodity, exchange value assumes the elementary form of money, and in all phases of the process of production, wealth reassumes for a moment the universal elementary commodity form. Even at the most advanced stage of bourgeois economy, the specific functions of gold and silver to serve as money, in contradistinction to their function of mediums of circulation, a function which distinguishes them from all other commodities, is not done away with, but only limited. Hence, the monetary and mercantile system retains its right of citizenship. The Catholic fact that gold and silver are contrasted with other profane commodities as the direct incarnation of social labor, that is, as the expression of abstract wealth, naturally offends the Protestant point d'honneur of bourgeois economy. And out of fear of the prejudices of the monetary system, it had lost for a long time its grasp of the phenomena of money circulation, as will be shown presently. It was quite natural that, contrary to the monetary and mercantile system, which knew money only in its form of crystallized product of circulation, classical political economy should have conceived money first of all in its fluent form of exchange value arising and disappearing within the process of the metamorphosis of commodities. And since the circulation of commodities is regarded exclusively in the form of C to M to C, and the latter in its turn, exclusively in its aspect of a dynamic unity of sale and purchase, money comes to be regarded in its capacity of a medium of circulation as opposed to its capacity of money. And when that medium of circulation is isolated in its function of coin, it turns, as we have seen, into a token of value. But since classical political economy had to deal with metallic circulation as the prevailing form of circulation, it defined metallic money as coin, and metallic coin as a mere token of value. In accordance with the law governing the circulation of tokens of value, the proposition was advanced that the prices of commodities depend on the quantity of money in circulation, instead of the opposite principle that the quantity of money in circulation depends on the prices of commodities. We find this view more or less clearly expressed by the Italian economists of the 17th century. Locke now asserts, now denies that principle. It is clearly elaborated in The Spectator of October 19, 1711, by Montesquieu and Hume. Since Hume was by far the most important representative of this theory in the 18th century, we shall commence our review with him. Under certain assumptions, an increase or a decrease in the quantity, either of the metallic money in circulation or of the tokens of value in circulation, seems to affect uniformly the prices of commodities. With each fall or rise of the value of gold or silver, in which the exchange values of commodities are estimated as prices, there is a rise or fall of prices, because of the changing in their measure of value, as a result of the rise or fall of prices. A greater or smaller quantity of gold and silver is circulating as coin, but the apparent phenomenon is the fall in prices, the exchange value of commodities remaining the same accompanied by an increased or diminished quantity of the medium of circulation. On the other hand, if the quantity of tokens of value rises above or falls below its required level, it is forcibly reduced to the latter by a fall or rise of prices. 
In either case, the same effect seems to be brought about by the same cause, and Hume holds fast to the semblance. Every scientific inquiry into the revelation between the volume of the circulating medium and the movement of prices must assume the value of the money material as given. Hume, on the contrary, considers exclusively periods of revolution in the value of the precious metals, that is, revolutions in the measure of value. The rise of prices which occurred simultaneously with the increase of metallic money after the discovery of the American mines forms the historical background of his theory. While his polemic against the monetary and mercantile system furnishes its practical motive, the importation of precious metals can naturally increase while their cost of production remains the same. On the other hand, a decrease in their value, that is, in the labor time required for their production, will reveal itself first of all in their increased imports. Hence, said the latter followers of Hume, a decrease in the value of the precious metals reveals itself in an increased volume of the circulating medium, and the increased volume of the latter is shown in the rise of prices. As a matter of fact, however, the rise in price affects only exported commodities, which are exchanged for gold and silver as commodities and not as mediums of circulation. Thus the prices of these commodities, which are now estimated in gold and silver of lower value, rise as compared with the prices of all other commodities whose exchange value continues to be estimated in gold or silver according to the standard of their old cost of production. This twofold appraisement of the exchange values of commodities in the same country can naturally be only temporary, and the gold and silver prices must become equalized in the proportions determined by the exchange values themselves, so that finally the exchange values of all commodities come to be estimated according to the new value of the money material. The development of this process, as well as the ways and means in which the exchange value of commodities asserts itself within the limits of the fluctuations of market prices, do not fall within the scope of this work. But that this equalization takes place but gradually in the early periods of development of bourgeois production and extends over long periods of time, never keeping pace with the increase of cash in circulation, has been strikingly demonstrated by new critical investigations of the movement of prices of commodities in the 16th century. Footnote. The slowness of the process was admitted by Hume, although it but little agrees with his principle. See David Hume, Essays and Treaties on Several Subjects, London, 1777, Volume 1, page 300. End of footnote. The favorite references of Hume's followers to the rise of prices in ancient Rome in consequence of the conquests of Macedonia, Egypt, and Asia Minor are quite irrelevant. The characteristic method of antiquity of suddenly transferring hoarded treasures from one country to another, which was accomplished by violence and thus brought about a temporary reduction of the cost of production of precious metals in a certain country by the simple process of plunder, affects just as little the intrinsic laws of money circulation as the gratuitous distribution of Egyptian and Sicilian grain in Rome affected the universal law governing the price of grain. Hume, as well as all other writers of the 18th century, was not in possession of the material necessary for the detailed observation of the circulation of money. This material, which first becomes available with the full development of banking, includes in the first place a critical history of prices of commodities, 
and in the second, official and current statistics relating to the expansion and contraction of the circulating medium, the imports and exports of the precious metals, etc. Hume's theory of circulation may be summed up in the following propositions. 1. The prices of commodities in a country are determined by the quantity of money existing there, real or symbolic money. 2. The money current in a country represents all the commodities to be found there, in proportion, quote, as there is more or less of this representation, that is, of money, there goes a greater or less quantity of the thing represented to the same quantity of it, end quote. 3. If commodities increase in quantity, their price falls, or the value of money rises. If money increases in quantity, then, on the contrary, the price of commodities rises and the value of money declines. Footnote. Conf. Stuart. Chapter 1, Volume 1, page 394 to 400. End of footnote. Quote, the dearness of everything, says Hume, from plenty of money is a disadvantage which attends an established commerce and sets bounds to it in every country by enabling the poorer states to undersell the richer in all foreign markets. End quote. Footnote. David Hume, L.C., page 300. End of footnote. Quote, where coin is in greater plenty, as a greater quantity of it is required to represent the same quantity of goods, it can have no effect, either good or bad, taking a nation within itself any more than it would make an alteration on a merchant's books, if, instead of the Arabian method of notation, which requires few characters, he should make use of the Roman, which requires a great many. Nay, the greater quantity of money, like the Roman characters, is rather inconvenient, and requires greater trouble both to keep and transport it. End quote. Footnote. David Hume, L.C., page 303. End of footnote. In order to prove anything, Hume should have shown that, under a given system of notation, the quantity of characters used does not depend on the magnitude of the numbers, but that, on the contrary, the magnitude of the numbers depends on the quantity of the characters used. It is perfectly true that there is no advantage in estimating or counting values of commodities in depreciated gold and silver. And that is the reason why nations have always found it more convenient with the growth of the value of the commodities in circulation to count in silver in preference to copper, and in gold rather than in silver. In proportion, as the nations became richer, they converted the less valuable metals into subsidiary coin and the more valuable ones into money. Furthermore, Hume forgets that, in order to count values in gold and silver, it is not necessary that either gold or silver should be on hand. Money of account and the medium of circulation are identical with him, and both are coin. Hume concludes that a rise or fall of prices depends on the quantity of money in circulation, because a change in the value of the measure of value, that is, of the precious metals which serve as money of account, causes a rise or fall of prices, and consequently also a change in the amount of money in circulation, the rapidity of the latter remaining the same. That not only the quantity of gold and silver increased in the 16th and 17th centuries, but that the cost of their production had declined at the same time, Hume could know from the closing up of the European mines. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the prices of commodities increased in Europe, 
with the influx of the mass of American gold and silver. Hence, the prices of commodities in every land are determined by the mass of gold and silver to be found there. This was Hume's first necessary consequence. Footnote. David Hume, L.C., page 303. End of footnote. In the 16th and 17th centuries, prices had not risen uniformly with the increase of the quantity of precious metals. More than half a century passed before any change in prices became perceptible. And even then, it took a long time before the exchange values of commodities came to be generally estimated according to the depreciated value of gold and silver, that is, before the revolution affected the general price level. Hence, concludes Hume, who quite contrary to the principles of his philosophy, generalizes indiscriminately from imperfectly observed facts. Prices of commodities or the value of money depend not on the total amount of money to be found in the country, but rather on the quantity of gold and silver which is actually in circulation. But in the long run, all the gold and silver in the country must be absorbed by circulation in the form of coin. Footnote. David Hume, L.C., page 307, 308, 303. Quote, it is evident that the prices do not so much depend on the absolute quantity of commodities and that of money, which are in a nation, as on that of the commodities, which can or may come to market, and of the money which circulates. If the coin be locked up in chests, it is the same thing with regard to prices, as if it were annihilated. If the commodities be hoarded in magazines and granaries, a like effect follows. As the money and commodities in these cases never meet, they cannot affect each other. The whole of prices at last reaches a just proportion with the new quantity of specie which is in the kingdom. End quote. End of footnote. It is clear that if gold and silver have a value of their own, then, apart from all other laws of circulation, only a definite quantity of gold and silver can circulate as the equivalent of commodities of a given value. If, therefore, every quantity of gold and silver which happens to be in a country must enter the sphere of exchange of commodities as a medium of circulation without regard to the total value of the commodities, then gold and silver have no intrinsic value and are, in fact, no real commodities. That is Hume's third necessary consequence. He makes commodities enter the process of circulation without price and gold and silver without value. That is the reason why he never speaks of the value of commodities and of gold, but only of their relative quantities. Locke had already said that gold and silver had merely an imaginary or conventional value, the first brutal expression of opposition to the assertion of the monetary system that gold and silver alone have true value. That gold and silver owe their character of money to the function they perform in the social process of exchange is interpreted to the effects that they owe their own value and therefore the magnitude of their value to a social function. Footnote. See Law and Franklin about surplus value, which gold and silver are supposed to acquire from their function of money. Also, for bonnets. End of footnote. Gold and silver are thus worthless things, which, however, acquire a fictitious value within the sphere of circulation as representatives of commodities. They are converted by the process of circulation not into money, but into value. This value of theirs is determined by the proportion between their own volume and that of the commodities, since the two must balance each other. 
Thus, Hume makes gold and silver enter the world of commodities as non-commodities, but as soon as they appear in the form of coin, he turns them, on the contrary, into mere commodities, which must be exchanged for other commodities by simple barter. In that manner, if the world of commodities consisted of but one commodity, say one million quarters of grain, the idea would work itself out very simply, viz. one quarter of grain would be exchanged for two ounces of gold, if there were altogether two million ounces of gold, and for twenty ounces of gold if there were a total of twenty million ounces. The price of the commodity and the value of money rising or falling in inverse ratio to the quantity of gold in existence. Footnote. This fiction is literally advanced by Montesquieu. The passage from Montesquieu is quoted by Marx in his Capital, Volume 1, Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 2, B, Footnote, Note by Karl Kautsky, to Second German Edition. End of footnote. But the world of commodities consists of an endless variety of use values, whose relative values are by no means determined by their relative quantities. How, then, does Hume conceive this exchange of the volume of commodities for the volume of gold? He contents himself with the meaningless, hollow idea that every commodity is exchanged as an aliquot part of the entire volume of commodities for a corresponding aliquot part of the volume of gold. The process of the movement of commodities due to the antagonism between exchange value and use value, which commodities bear within themselves, and which manifests itself in the circulation of money, becoming crystallized in different forms of the latter, is thus done away with, giving place to the imaginary mechanical equalization process between the quantity of precious metals to be found in a country and the volume of commodities existing there at the same time. Sir James Stewart opens his inquiry into the nature of coin and money with an elaborate criticism of Hume and Montesquieu. Footnote, Stuart, L.C., Volume 1, page 394, sec. End of footnote. He is really the first to ask this question. Is the quantity of current money determined by the prices of commodities, or are the prices of commodities determined by the quantity of current money? Although his analysis is obscured by his fantastic conception of the measure of value, his vacillating view of exchange value, and by reminiscences of the mercantile system, he discovers the essential forms of money and the general laws of the circulation of money. Because he makes no attempt at a mechanical separation of commodities from money, but proceeds to develop its different functions from the different aspects of the exchange of commodities, money is used, he says, for two principal purposes, for the payment of debts and for the purchase of what one needs. The two together form ready money demands. The state of trade and industry, the mode of living, the customary expenditures of the people, taken all together, regulate and determine the volume of ready money demands, that is, the number of alienations. In order to effect this multitude of payments, a certain proportion of money is required. This proportion may increase or decrease according to circumstances, even while the number of alienations remains the same. At any rate, the circulation of a country can absorb only a definite quantity of money. Footnote. Stuart, L.C., Volume 2, page 377-379, to Passam, not found in the 1767 London edition. Translator. End of footnote. Quote, It is the complicated operations of demand and competition 
which determines the standard price of everything, end quote. The latter, quote, does not in the least depend on the quantity of gold and silver in the country, end quote. Footnote, Stuart, L.C., page 379 to 380, Passam, London, 1767 edition, volume 1, page 400, translator. End of footnote. What, then, will become of the gold and silver that is not required as coin? They are hoarded or used in the manufacture of articles of luxury. If the quantity of gold and silver fall below the level required for circulation, symbolic money or other substitutes take its place. If a favorable rate of exchange brings about a surplus of money in the country and cuts off at the same time the demand for its shipment abroad, it will accumulate in strong boxes, where the, quote, riches will remain without producing more effect than if they had remained in the mine, end quote. The second law discovered by Stuart is that of the reflux of credit circulation to its starting point. Finally, he works out the effects which the disparity of the rates of interest in different countries produces upon the international export and import of precious metals. The last two points we mention here are only for the sake of completeness, since they have but a remote bearing on the subject of our discussion. Footnote. Quote, the additional coin will be locked up or converted into plate. As for the paper money, so soon as it has served the first purpose of supplying the demand of him who borrowed it, it will return upon the debtor in it and become realized. Let the specie of a country, therefore, be augmented or diminished in ever so great a proportion. Commodities will still rise and fall according to the principles of demand and competition and these will constantly depend upon the inclinations of those who have property or any kind of equivalent whatsoever to give, but never upon the quantity of coin they are possessed of. Let it, namely the quantity of specie in a country, be ever so low, while there is real property of any denomination in the country, a competition to consume in those who possess it, prices will be high, by the means of barter, symbolic money, mutual prestations, in a thousand other inventions. If this country has a communication with other nations, there must be a proportion between the prices of many kinds of merchandise there and elsewhere, and a sudden augmentation or diminution of the specie. Supposing it could of itself operate the effects of raising or sinking prices would be restrained in its operation by foreign competition. End quote. LC, Volume 1, page 400 to 402. Quote, the circulation of every country must be in proportion to the industry of the inhabitants producing the commodities which come to market. If the coin of a country, therefore, falls below the proportion of the price of industry offered to sale, inventions like symbolical money will be fallen upon to provide for an equivalent for it. But if the specie be found above the proportion of industry, it will have no effect in raising prices, nor will it enter into circulation. It will be hoarded up in treasures. Whatsoever be the quantity of money in a nation, in correspondence with the rest of the world, there never can remain in circulation but the quantity nearly proportional to the consumption of the rich and to the labor and industry of the poor inhabitants. End quote. And this proportion is not determined. Quote, by the quantity of money actually in the country, end quote. LC, page 403 to 408, Passam. Quote, all nations will endeavor to throw their ready money 
not necessarily for their own circulation, into that country where the interest of money is high with respect to their own, end quote. LC, Volume 2, page 5. Quote, the richest nation in Europe may be the poorest in circulating specie, end quote. LC, Volume 2, page 6. For the polemics against Stuart, see Arthur Young. In his footnote in Capital, Volume 1, Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 2, B, page 62, Humboldt edition. Mark says, The theory of Hume was defended against the attacks of J. Stuart and others by A. Young in his Political Arithmetic, London, 1774, in which work there is a special chapter entitled Prices Depend on Quantity of Money, note by Karl Kautsky to Second German Edition, end of footnote. Symbolic money or credit money. Stuart does not as yet distinguish between the two forms of money, may take the place of precious metals as a means of purchase or means of payment in the sphere of home circulation, but never in the world market. Paper notes are therefore money of the society, while gold and silver are money of the world. Footnote, Stuart, L.E., Volume 2, page 370. Louis Blanc translates the expression money of the society, which stands for home or national money, as socialist money, which is perfectly meaningless and makes a socialist of John Law. See the first volume of his History of the French Revolution. End of footnote. It is characteristic of nations with a historical development in the sense in which the term is used by the historical school of law to keep forgetting their own history. Although the controversy as to the relation of prices of commodities to the volume of the circulating medium has been continually agitating Parliament for the last half a century and has precipitated in England thousands of pamphlets, large and small, Stuart has remained even more of a dead dog than Spinoza seemed to be to Moses Mandelson in Lessing's time. Even the latest writer on the history of currency, McLaren, makes Adam Smith the original author of Stuart's theory, and Ricardo of Hume's theory. Footnote, McLaren, L.C., page 43, sec. Patriotism led Gustav Julius, a German writer who met with a very early death, to hold up Old Bush as an authority as against the Ricardian school. Honest Bush rendered Stuart's elegant English into Hamburg plot, and by trying to improve upon the original, spoiled it as often as he could. End of footnote. While Ricardo elaborated Hume's theory, Adam Smith registered the results of Stuart's investigation as dead facts. Adam Smith applied the scotch, saying that, quote, money mickles mac a muckle, end quote, even to his spiritual wealth, and therefore concealed with petty care the sources to which he owed the little out of which he tried to make so much. More than once he prefers to break off the point of the discussion whenever he feels that an attempt on his part clearly to formulate the question would compel him to settle his accounts with his predecessors. So in the case of the money theory. He tacitly adopts Stuart's theory when he says that the gold and silver existing in the country is partly utilized as coin, partly accumulated in the form of reserve funds for merchants in countries without banks, or of bank reserves in countries with a credit currency partly serves as a hoard for the settling of international payments, partly is turned into articles of luxury. He passes over without remark the question as to the quantity of coin in circulation, treating money quite wrongly as a mere commodity. Footnote. 
Note to the second edition, this is not an exact statement. Adam Smith expresses the law correctly on many occasions. See Capital, Humboldt edition, page 62, footnote 1. Where writing seven years later, Marx makes the following qualification. Quote, this statement applies only insofar as Adam Smith, ex officio, treats of money. Now and then, however, as is his criticism of the earlier systems of political economy, he takes the right view. Quote, the quantity of coin in every country is regulated by the value of the commodities which are to be circulated by it. The value of the goods annually bought and sold in any country requires a certain quantity of money to circulate and distribute them to the proper consumers and can give employment to no more. The channel of circulation necessarily draws to itself a sum sufficient to fill it and never admits any more wealth. End quote. Wealth of Nations, Book 4, Chapter 1. End quote. End of footnote. His vulgarizer, the dull J.B. Say, whom the French have proclaimed Prince de la Science, like Johann Christoph Gottscheid, who proclaimed his Schoenreich a Homer and himself a Petro Artino to the Terror Principium and Lux Mundi, has with great pomp raised this not altogether innocent oversight of Adam Smith to a dogma. Footnote. The distinction between currency and money is therefore not found in Wealth of Nations. Deceived by the apparent impartiality of Adam Smith, who knew his Hume and Stuart very well, Honest McLaren remarks, quote, The theory of the dependence of prices on the extent of the currency had not as yet attracted attention, and Dr. Smith, like Mr. Locke, Locke undergoes a change in his view, considers metallic money nothing but a commodity, end quote. McLaren, LC, page 44. End of footnote. It must be said, however, that his hostile attitude to the illusions of the mercantile system prevented Adam Smith from taking an objective view of the phenomena of metallic circulation, while his views on credit money are original and deep. As in the 18th century petrification theories, there is always felt the presence of an undercurrent which springs from either a critical or apologetic attitude toward the biblical tradition of the flood, so there is concealed behind all the money theories of the 18th century a secret struggle with the monetary system, the ghost which had stood guard over the cradle of bourgeois economy and continued to throw its shadow over legislation. In the 19th century, inquiries into the nature of money were not prompted directly by phenomena of metallic circulation, but rather by those of banknote circulation. The former was touched upon only in order to discover the laws governing the latter, the suspension of specie payments by the Bank of England in 1797, the rise of prices of many commodities which followed it, the fall of the mint price of gold below its market price, the depreciation of banknotes, especially since 1809, furnished the direct practical occasion for a party struggle in Parliament and a theoretical tournament outside of it, both conducted with like passion. The historical background for the controversy was furnished by the history of paper money during the 18th century, the fiasco of Law's Bank, the depreciation of the provincial banknotes of the English colonies in North America from the beginning to the middle of the 18th century, which went hand in hand with the increase in the number of tokens of value. Further, the continental bills issued as legal tender by the American government during the War of Independence and finally, the experiment with the French assignats carried out on a still larger scale. Most of the English writers of that period confound the circulation of banknotes 
which is governed by quite different laws with the circulation of tokens of value or government legal tender paper money. And while they claim to explain the phenomena of this legal tender circulation by the laws of metallic circulation, they proceed, as a matter of fact, just the opposite way, viz. deducting laws for the latter from phenomena observed in connection with the former. We omit all the numerous writers of the period of 1800 to 1809, and turn directly to Ricardo, both because he embodies the views of his predecessors, which he formulates with great precision, and because the shape he gave to the theory of money governs English bank legislation until this moment. Ricardo, like his predecessors, confounds the circulation of banknotes or credit money with the circulation of mere tokens of value. The fact which impresses him most is the depreciation of paper currency accompanied by the rise of prices of commodities. What the American mines have been to Hume, the paper bill presses in Threadneedle Street were to Ricardo, and he himself expressly identifies the two factors at some place in his works. His first writings, which dealt exclusively with the money question, belonged to the time of the most violent controversy between the Bank of England, which had on its side the ministers and the war party, and its opponents about whom were centred the parliamentary opposition, the Whigs and the Peace Party. They appeared as immediate forerunners of the famous report of the Bullying Committee of 1810, in which Ricardo's views were adopted. Footnote. David Ricardo, The High Price of Bullion, a proof of the depreciation of banknotes. Fourth edition, London, 1811. The first edition appeared in 1809. Further, reply to Mr. Bonsacquet's practical observation on the report of the bullying committee, London, 1811. End of footnote. The singular circumstances that Ricardo and his adherents, who held money to be merely a token of value, are called bullionists, is due not only to the name of that committee, but also to the nature of their theory. In his work on political economy, Ricardo repeated and developed further the same views, but nowhere has he investigated the nature of money as such, as he had done in the case of exchange value, profit, rent, etc. To begin with, Ricardo determines the value of gold and silver, like that of all other commodities, by the quantity of labor time embodied in them. Footnote. David Ricardo, on the principles of political economy, etc. Page 77. Quote. Their value of metals, like that of all other commodities, depends on the total quantity of labor necessary to obtain the metal and to bring it to market. End quote. End of footnote. By means of them, as commodities of a given value, the values of all other commodities are measured. Footnote. LC, page 77, 180, 181. End of footnote. The volume of the circulating medium in a country is determined by the value of the unit of measure of money, on the one hand, and by the sum total of the exchange values of commodities on the other. This quantity is modified by economy in the method of payment. Footnote. Ricardo, LC, page 421. Quote, the quantity of money that can be employed in a country must depend on its value. If gold alone were employed for the circulation of commodities, a quantity would be required, one-fifteenth only of what would be necessary if silver were made use of for the same purpose. End quote. See Ricardo's Proposals for an Economical and Secure Currency, London, 1816, page 89, where he says, quote, The amount of notes in circulation depends on the amount required for the circulation of the country, which is regulated by the value of the standard of money, the amount of payments, and the economy practiced in effecting them, end quote. 
End of footnote. Since the quantity of money of a given value, which can be absorbed by circulation, is thus determined, and since the value of money within the sphere of circulation manifests itself only in its quantity, it follows that mere tokens of value, if issued in proportions determined by the value of money, may replace it in circulation. And in fact, quote, a currency is in its most perfect state when it consists wholly of paper money, but of paper money of an equal value with the gold which it professes to represent. End quote. Footnote. Ricardo, Principles of Political Economy, page 432. End of footnote. So far, Ricardo determines the volume of the circulating medium by the prices of commodities, assuming the value of money to be given. Money as a token of value means with him a token of a definite quantity of gold and not a mere worthless representative of commodities as was the case with Hume. When Ricardo suddenly gets off the straight path of his presentation and takes the very opposite view, he does so to turn his attention to the international circulation of precious metals and thus brings confusion into the problem by introducing considerations that are foreign to the subject. Let us follow his own course of reasoning, and, in order to remove everything that is artificial and incidental, let us assume that the gold and silver mines are located in the interior of the countries in which the precious metals circulate as money. The only inference which follows from Ricardo's reasoning as so far developed is that, the value of gold being given, the quantity of money in circulation will be determined by the prices of commodities. Thus, at a given moment, the quantity of gold in circulation in a country is simply determined by the exchange value of the commodities in circulation. Let us suppose now that the sum total of these exchange values has declined either because there are less commodities produced at the old exchange values, or because, in consequence of an increased productivity of labor, the same quantity of commodities has a smaller value. Or, we may assume, on the contrary, that the sum total of exchange values has increased, either because the quantity of commodities has increased while the cost of their production has remained the same, or because the value of the same, or of a smaller quantity of commodities, has risen in consequence of a diminished productivity of labor. What becomes, in either case, of the given quantity of metal in circulation? If gold is money merely because it is current as a medium of circulation, if it is compelled to remain in circulation like government legal tender paper money, and that is what Ricardo has in mind, then the quantity of money in circulation will rise above the normal level, as determined by the exchange value of the metal in the former case, and fall below that level in the latter. Although possessing a value of its own, Gold will become, in the former case, a token of a metal of lower exchange value than its own, and in the latter, a token of a metal of higher value. In the former case, it will remain as a token of value less than its own. In the latter, greater than its own. Again, an abstract deduction from legal tender paper money. In the former case, it is the same as though commodities were estimated in a metal of lower value than gold. In the latter, as though they were estimated in a metal of higher value. In the former case, prices of commodities would rise therefore, in the latter they would fall. In either case, the movement of prices, their rise or fall, would appear as the effect of a relative expansion or contraction of the volume of gold in circulation above or below the level corresponding to its own value, that is, above or below the normal quantity which is determined by the proportion between its own value and that of the commodities in circulation.
The same process would take place if the sum total of the prices of the commodities in circulation remained unchanged. While the volume of gold in circulation came to be below or above the right level, the former in case the gold coin wore out in the course of circulation were not replaced by the production of a corresponding quantity of gold in the mines. The latter, if the output of the mines exceeded the requirements of circulation, in either case it is assumed that the cost of production of gold or its value remain the same. To sum up, the money in circulation is at its normal level, when its volume is determined by its own bullion value, the exchange value of commodities being given. It rises above that level, bringing about a fall in the value of gold below its own bullion value and a rise of prices of commodities. Whenever the sum total of the exchange values of the commodities declines, or the output of gold from the mines increases, it sinks below its right level, leading to a rise of gold above its own bullion value, and to a fall of prices of commodities. Whenever the sum total of the exchange values of the commodities or the gold output of the mines is not sufficient to replace the quantity of outworn gold. In either case, the gold in circulation becomes a token of value greater or smaller than that it really possesses. It may become an appreciated or depreciated token of itself. As soon as all commodities would come to be estimated in gold of this new value, and the general price level would accordingly rise or fall, the quantity of current gold would again answer the requirements of circulation, a consequence which Ricardo emphasizes with great pleasure but would be at a variance with the cost of production of the precious metals and, therefore, with their relation as commodities to all other commodities. According to the general Ricardian theory of exchange value, the rise of gold above its exchange value, that is, above the value as determined by the labor time contained in it, would cause an increase in the production of gold until the increased output of it would reduce its value to the proper magnitude. In the same manner, a fall of gold below its value would cause a decline in the production until its value rose again to its proper magnitude. By these opposite movements, the discrepancy between the bullion value of gold and its value as a medium of circulation would disappear. The normal level of the volume of gold in circulation would be restored, and the price level would again correspond to the measure of value. These fluctuations in the value of gold in circulation would to the same extent affect gold in the form of bullion, because by assumption, all gold is not utilized as an article of luxury is supposed to be in circulation. Since gold itself may become, both as coin and bullion, a token of value of greater or smaller magnitude than its bullion value, it is self-understood that convertible banknotes in circulation have to share the same fate. Although banknotes are convertible, that is, the real value and nominal value agree. Quote, the aggregate currency consisting of metal and of convertible notes, end quote, may appreciate or depreciate according as to whether it rises or falls, for reasons already stated, above or below the level determined by the exchange value of the commodities in circulation and the bullion value of gold. Inconvertible paper money has, from this point of view, only that advantage as against convertible paper money that it may depreciate in a twofold manner. It may fall below the value of the metal which it is supposed to represent because it has been issued in too great quantity, or it may depreciate because the metal it represents has itself fallen in value. This depreciation, not of paper as compared with gold, but of gold and paper together, 
or of the aggregate currency of a country, is one of the principal discoveries of Ricardo, which Lord Overston and co. pressed into their service and made a fundamental principle of Sir Robert Peel's bank legislation of 1844 and 1845. What should have been proven was that the price of commodities or the value of gold depends on the quantity of gold in circulation. The proof consists in the assumption of what is to be proven, viz. that any quantity of the precious metal employed as money must become a medium of circulation or coin, and thereby a token of value for the commodities in circulation, no matter in what proportion to its own intrinsic value and no matter what the total value of those commodities may be. To put it differently, the proof consists in overlooking all the other functions which money performs besides its function of a medium of circulation. When hard-pressed, as in his controversy with Bosanquet, Ricardo, completely under the influence of the phenomenon of depreciated tokens of value caused by their quality, takes recourse to dogmatic assurances. Footnote. David Ricardo. Reply to Mr. Bonsiquet's Practical Observations, etc., page 49, quote, that commodities would rise or fall in price in proportion to the increase or diminution of money, I assume as a fact which is incontrovertible, end quote. End of footnote. If Ricardo had built up this theory by abstract reasoning, as we have done it here, without introducing concrete facts and incidental matters, which only distract his attention from the main question, its hollowness would be striking but he takes up the entire subject in its international aspect. It will be easy to prove, however, that the apparent magnitude of scale does not make his fundamental ideas less diminutive. His first proposition was as follows. The volume of metallic currency is normal when it is determined by the total value of the commodities in circulation estimated in its bullion value. Expressed so as to apply to international conditions, it reads thus. In a normal state of circulation, every country possesses a quantity of money, quote, according to the state of its commerce and wealth, end quote. Money circulates at a value corresponding to its real value or to its cost of production. That is, it has the same value in all countries. Footnote, David Ricardo, The High Price of Bullion, etc. Quote, money would have the same value in all countries, end quote. Page 4. In his political economy, Ricardo modified the statement, but not in a way to affect what has been said here. End of footnote. That being the case, quote, there could be no temptation offered to either for their importation or exportation. End quote. Footnote. LC, page 3 to 4. End of footnote. There would thus be established a balance of currencies between the different countries. The normal level of a national currency is now expressed in terms of an international balance of currencies, which practically amounts to the statement that nationality does not change anything in a universal economic law. Have we reached again the same fatal point as before? How is the normal level disturbed? Or, speaking in terms of the new terminology, how is the international balance of currencies disturbed? Or, how does money cease to have the same value in all countries? Or, finally, how does it cease to pass at its own value in every country? We have seen that the normal level was disturbed by an increase or decrease of the volume of money in circulation while the total value of commodities remained the same. Or, because the quantity of money in circulation remained the same while the exchange values of commodities rose or fell. In the same manner, the international level, determined by the value of the metal itself, 
is disturbed by an increase in the quantity of gold in a country brought about by the discovery of new gold mines, or by an increase or decrease of the total exchange value of the circulating commodities in any particular country. Footnote, LC, page 4. End of footnote. Just as in the former case, the output of the precious metals decreased or increased according as to whether it was necessary to contract or expand the currency, and thereby to lower or raise prices. So are the same effects produced now by export and import from one country to another. In the country in which prices would rise or the value of gold would fall below the bullion value in consequence of a redundant currency, gold would be depreciated, and the prices of commodities would rise as compared with other countries. Gold would, therefore, be exported, while commodities would be imported and vice versa. Just as in the former case, the output of gold, so now the import or export of gold, and, with it, the rise or fall of prices of commodities would continue until, as we would have said before, the right value relation would be restored between the metal and commodities, or, as we shall say now, the international balance of currencies would be restored. Just as in the former case, the production of gold increased or decreased because gold stood above or below its value. So now the international migration of gold would take place for the same reason. Just as in the former case, every change in the production of the circulating metal affected its quantity and, thereby, prices, so would the same effect be produced now by international import or export. As soon as the relative values of gold and commodities or the normal quantity of currency would be restored, no further production would take place in the former case, and no further export or import in the latter except insofar as would be necessary to replace outworn coin and to meet the demand of manufacturers of articles of luxury. It follows, quote, that the temptation to export or money in exchange for goods or what is termed an unfavorable balance of trade never arises but from a redundant currency, end quote. Footnote, Ricardo, LC, page 11 and 12, end of footnote. Quote, the exportation of the coin is caused by its cheapness and not in the effect, but the cause of an unfavorable balance, end quote. Footnote, Ricardo, LC, page 14, end of footnote. Since the increase or decrease in the production of gold in the former case and the importation or exportation of gold in the latter take place only whenever its volume rises above or sinks below its normal level, that is, whenever gold appreciates or depreciates in comparison with its bullion value, or whenever prices of commodities are too high or too low, it follows that every such movement works as a corrective, since, through the resultant expansion or contraction of the currency, prices are restored to their true level. In the former case, this level represents the balance between the respective values of gold and of commodities, in the latter, the international balance of currencies. Footnote, LC, page 17, end of footnote. To put it in other words, money circulates in different countries only insofar as it circulates as coin in every country. Money is but coin, and all the gold existing in a country must therefore enter circulation, that is, it can rise above or fall below its value as a token of value. Thus we safely land again, by the roundabout way of this international complication, at the simple dogma which constituted our starting point. End of chapter 2, section C, part 1.